Good morning and welcome to this Good Friday. Today we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 16 and see why Good Friday truly is good news. And as we look to God's word now, let's ask for God's help that we might see the riches in his word and the wonderful provisions in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that this day truly is a Good Friday. It's a Good Friday not because of what we have achieved, but how you have so graciously provided our salvation. Lord, as we look to your word now, we pray that we might see the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we might behold what he has done, that we might be overflowing with our thankfulness, but Lord, that we may also desire and hold out that same hope to those who have not yet come to know the riches of peace and union with you through faith in Jesus Christ. So work in us, challenge us, change us, and help us to love and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm quite glad that at this point in time, I don't actually have any weddings on the go. At this moment, as you know, we have limitations in Australia that you can only have five people in attendance at a wedding. That is the bride, the groom, the celebrant, and one witness each. Now, I do have a friend named Pete who was scheduled to get married pretty close to the time when it was announced that restrictions were going to come in, that it was going to reduce it down to five. So the day before that came in, they made some changes and they got together, they got married in their wetsuits, in a pool, and they were able to have that slightly larger group to have some family and friends there of up to 10 people. But there's such a joy amongst new couples as they are looking forward to their wedding day. Like if you were to ask them, when's the day, they don't turn around and say, what do you mean, cheap Tuesday, wings Wednesday? Now, in their mind, when you speak about the day, there is one day in their mind that all of their thinking and all of their world is revolving around. Now, today, as we look at Leviticus chapter 16, we are looking at the Day of Atonement even though it's not specifically given that title until Leviticus chapter 23. On the 10th day of the 7th month, this is when these events took place. Now over the passing of time, this became so special to the people of God that they would refer to this day as the day. It was the centre and the heart of everything that they did and everything that they treasured. It's right there slap bang in the middle of this book of Leviticus. But it's also right there at the very center of the whole five books of Moses, or what we might call the Pentateuch. Now, some of you smart people might have started to think, I'm pretty sure this whole Easter Good Friday thing's about Jesus, and I've read Leviticus 16, and I don't see Jesus specifically mentioned there at all. But Jesus' death on the cross only makes sense if it achieves a purpose or if there's a reason for it. If we just talk about Jesus dying on a cross as a concept, totally removed from its context, you start to wonder, is he just like a really passionate guy about a cause that he would take it so far that he would die for it? 
But as we look at the Old Testament context, we see there's actual meaning and reasons and purpose. It actually accomplishes something far bigger than just being a champion of a particular cause. It's where we encounter our Savior, the one who frees us, the one who rescues us. And you might think, are you kidding? Do I need rescuing, saving or freeing? Surely not. And that's the question we are asking today. Is Good Friday really good news? Is it good news for everybody? Is it good news for a select number of people? Is it good news for nobody? And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to look at it in this way. Firstly, we're going to look at good news for who? Then we're going to look at the temporary good news, the everlasting good news, and wrapping it up by asking the question, is this good news for you? So as we ask the question, who is this good news for? You need to ask, what is good news at all? Usually we use that term good news to describe the end of something that was bad news. To use an example that's very much forefront in our mind, we might say if the COVID-19 crisis came to an end, we'd call that good news. In my AFL-loving mind, if the AFL season was to resume, resume again, I would consider that to be good news. It's, it's the bringing to the end of a bad news and the good news coming in in its place. But I can also think of an example of a good news that is not necessarily the resolving of a bad news. Like we see when God first created the world, including the first human beings, and he blessed them abundantly with all of these things that we see around us in creation. And there they were, walking and talking with the almighty creator God who made everything we see just by speaking it into being. And you think, man, how good is that? The world in which they lived, they had perfect union and peace with their creator. There was no pain. There was no struggling. There's no people doing things evil to one another. It was perfect. And all of that went down the drain when they decided to separate themselves, when they decided they didn't want union and peace with God, yet instead they wanted to rule their own lives, make their own decisions. I'm the boss. I don't want God. I don't want this creator who's given me everything to tell me how to live the life that he's given me. And at that point, everything that we don't like about this world came into being. People doing things nasty to one another. Death, pain, sicknesses, viruses like we see now are one of the consequences of sin because the perfect union that existed between the creation and the creator was corrupted. And now everything in all of creation is corrupted. Even the weeds you have in your yard are a result of mankind turning their back upon their good and loving creator. While there was peace and unity with the Creator, everything was good. Everything was good news. There was nothing other than good news. But after mankind chose to break the unity and peace with God, 
That's when everything went downhill. And this wasn't just the first bad news. It continues to be bad news. Because every one of us have inherited from those first human beings, Adam and Eve, a sin nature. That is, a nature that says, I don't want God. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm the ruler of my own life. All of us are guilty. All of us are guilty of turning our back upon our God, not honouring the way in which we should. I remember when I was a younger fella, I used to think about it this way. If there is a God, if he thinks I'm not good enough for him, that's his problem, not mine. Do you see that again? That was my opinion as a younger fella. If I'm not good enough for God, that's his problem, not mine. In other words, I thought that if anything needed to happen in that relationship, if he existed, he needed to lower his standards to accept me, rather than for me to acknowledge and honour his holiness and his perfection. In other words, the Creator needed to serve the created, rather than the created serving and honouring and loving the Creator. Now I think the majority of the world would think this way. If God really does exist, surely when I die, I'm good enough, I will go to be in His presence. Now what might surprise you is, every single Christian is very well aware that they are not good enough, they do not live lives good enough that would give them access to enter into the presence of God. Not a single one of them. I've been a pastor now for 10 years. I've been a Christian for a total of 25 years. And I am painfully aware of all of my imperfections, all of my failings. And I know I don't deserve to enter into the presence of God based upon my life for even one second. And as we look at Leviticus chapter 16, we are reminded of that great chasm, that massive gap between a perfectly holy God and his creation, who are now through inherited through Adam and Eve, an imperfect and unholy people. Let's read these first three verses, which make that so clear. The Lord God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. You know, there are three significant things that are said just in those three verses that make it so abundantly clear that people cannot presume they can just casually approach and enter into God's presence. First, you've got Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We see this recorded in Leviticus chapter 10, 1 to 3, who took a, a censer there with, with incense into the holy place. It was not their prescribed role. It was not the prescribed time to go into that place. And because of their imperfection entering into the presence of a holy God, they were consumed by fire. This is the high priest's sons. This is not just some, some riffraff who is, hates God and makes big state. This is the high priest's son. 
than even the high priest himself. He's told you can't come in before the holy place at any old time, lest you die. No, you come in there on one day and you come in there via the means that God has provided. You will come with the blood of a bull who has been sacrificed to pay the price for your sin. You can't go there any day. There is one man who can enter into the place where the presence of God dwells. He can only do it on one day of the year and he can only do it via the means that God has provided for that to take place. Now, tradition says that the high priest, when they would go in and perform those tasks, would have a rope around their ankle so that if they did something wrong and they were struck dead, they would be dragged out because another person would not be able to enter in to go and collect them. Now, Aaron the high priest, you think, this is the highest religious person in the land. He doesn't turn around and say, oh, fair sucker the salve. I'm the high priest. Now, if you're going to be pleased with anyone, it's me. I should just be able to come in any old time. No, he recognizes that even as the high priest, there is such a vast gap between the perfectly holy God and him that he knows he cannot just casually approach and enter into the presence of God. He acknowledges his unworthy. He gives thanks that God has provided a way, even if it is only one day a year, that he can come into his presence to deal with not only his sin, but the sin of the people of Israel. The bottom line is very clear. The only way anybody can approach God is the way which God provides. There's nothing I can do that should give me confidence to stand in his presence other than the means which God provides. Even if you were the high priest, you know it is wrong to presume that you have right and access. So if in your mind you were thinking, surely, surely when I die, I would naturally go into the presence of God, be reminded that even the high priest could not so boldly think that he would just approach God on his own terms, but only by the means which God had provided. Had Aaron tried to approach on any other means, his fate would have been the same as his two sons. He would have been struck dead. It actually says that in those first three verses. So if the highest religious person in the nation can't just approach God on their own terms, how foolish it would be for us to think that we can approach God on our terms. Now Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. The second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we preached through last year. And the last thing that happens in the book of Exodus is that they build a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place where God's presence would dwell amongst the people of Israel. And so the book of Leviticus, which directly follows after there, is a series of rules and regulations that work through the idea of how can a perfectly holy God dwell amongst a perfect, an imperfect and unholy people. There's no question about it. It is just a given that these two things cannot live together and in harmony. Perfect holy God and unholy people, these two do not coexist harmoniously at all. That's the bad news for ancient Israel. But it's also the bad news for all of us. Because we've seen that none of us are entitled 
to have access or enter into the presence of God. Our rebellious, sinful nature means that we've got no union, no peace with the God who blesses us and who loves us and who created us. It doesn't sound like good news, but this is the good and loving God. And rather than just giving us what we deserve, instead, He provides the way by which we can have access, by which our sins can be dealt with. Firstly, by looking at a temporary good news. Now, I've chosen the word temporary to refer to the fact that it's limited in its time. It's limited in its effect. It's not like a sort of a duct tape, half-hearted effort until God can think of something better to do. Its temporary nature had a definite purpose which it was achieving. Leviticus 16 focuses upon what the high priest does on this one day of the year to atone for a sinful people so that they may live in the presence of and in relationship with a holy God. Or how to deal with the tension, how to deal with the hostility of God amongst a sinful and rebellious people. The high priest has to trust God's provided way to deal with his sin, with the sin of the people, and with the effect of sin upon the tabernacle itself. First thing that the high priest does is he makes atonement for his own sin. Before he can deal with the sins of the people, he must deal with his own sin. It's humbling to be reminded of that, isn't it? That even the high priest saw himself as an unworthy sinner whose sin needed to be dealt with in order to access God. In verses 11 to 14, this is what the high priest had to do. He had to sacrifice a bull on the altar as an offering, as a substitute for his own punishment of death for his sin. Even then he cannot enter into the holy place. Then he enters into the first holy place where he takes the censer with coal and the incense so that it would create a smoke before the presence of God when he enters into the most holy holy place that he might not look upon the presence of God and die and only then can he come into the holy of holies or the most holy place which he comes in with the blood from that bull which he places on top of the mercy seat that is the in crude terms the lid upon the ark of the covenant where the presence of God was said to dwell between those two cherubim who were on the lid, whose faces were looking down upon that mercy seat. And as they looked down upon us did the presence of God, what they could see is the blood of an animal who had been slain to pay for the sins of sinful people. There's a forever reminder on that seat that a death has taken place on behalf of a sinful people as a substitute to atone for their sin before God. The high priest atones for his own sin, not going in any glorious robes, not any of his majesty or claims of pride of who he is, but in the humility of a cleansed, simple linen robe. And having made atonement for himself, he then goes on to deal with the sins for the people with two goats. 
there are two gates in the sacrifices offered on behalf of the people. The first one, which is sacrifice and offered as a sin offering, just like the bull was for the high priest, where it was killed and the blood was taken and placed upon the mercy seat. Again, the cherubim in the presence of God, seeing that a death has taken place on behalf of a sinful people. That's what the first goat does. And you think, well, if that's sorting out the sin, what, what's the second goat do? Now, the second goat is sometimes referred to as a scapegoat. Now, I need to acknowledge that in some of your Bible translations, you might have Azazel rather than the word scapegoat, which is really just a English letter version of the Hebrew word, which could mean scapegoat, like one who takes the blame or the works of another, or some see it as being a place to which the goat, a geographical place which the goat was sent to. But either way, the idea is that the priest would take both of their hands, this is the first time in any sacrifice where both hands are placed upon the animal, and let's read here from verses 21 and 22, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bell all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So the first goat pays for, or is the substitute for the punishment for the sins of the people, and the second one has the sins pronounced and laid upon it by hands as a way of saying these sins are being taken away. And what goes actually further than what we read in the book of Leviticus, historically we read that the way that they practiced this is that as that second goat was released, people would spit upon that goat. They would pull hairs, or if it's called fur, whatever sheep have got, goat, they'd pull it out, and then they would throw that thing off a cliff. And you could see the extent in those actions to which they despised their sins and how much it was important to them that their sins would have no opportunity to return because they realized that their sins were a hindrance to their relationship with God and they were happy to see them go and to see them go quickly. Shouldn't we as God's people long to see our sins leave us? to turn from our sins, to turn to living lives worthy of the gospel. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day, the most solemn day amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. But it was the temporary good news. It was temporary. It had to be repeated every single year. Again, each year the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself, a sacrifice for the people, and the year after that, and the year after that, they would continue to do the same. No doubt the people were left longing. When? When? When will God deal with our sins once and for all? Which leads us to the everlasting good news. Now, it's this Old Testament background is the context that makes significant Jesus' death on a cross. That makes it good news, that makes Jesus' death, why we call it, Good Friday. No longer do we speak of a temporary good news, 
of a sinful high priest who would have to atone for their own sin and then atone for others and then have to repeat it year in, year out. Happen once a year, repeat it every year. People must have been thinking, when? When will this be dealt with once and for all? Yet even though the Old Testament practice was limited and needed to be repeated, it seemed to them a joy and a, and a privilege that they could access, have access to God at all. But in the coming of Jesus, there was an everlasting and a comprehensive good news. Even as Jesus was born, the angel said this, and the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news that is great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you in the, born in this day in the city of David is a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Before Jesus had even spoken a word, the angels say, This Jesus is good news for all people. He is good news for all people because he is the Saviour. We've seen so clearly in Leviticus chapter 16 that nobody can presume that they're right with God, that they have peace with God. Not even the high priest did. He had to make his own sacrifices. But all of those rituals, like the Day of Atonement, the Passover, are a sign that a substitutionary death had to take place in order to reconcile a people to a perfect and holy God. And all of those symbols, all of those illustrations in those practices pointed forward and looked to their final fulfilment in a final perfect high priest, a final perfect sacrifice, both of which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is the perfect high priest who offers the sacrifice, but who also is the perfect sacrifice that never needs to be repeated again. No longer do we have a temporary good news of an imperfect priest and an imperfect sacrifice. We have the everlasting and complete and perfect good news that the Saviour has come to the world the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. The writer of Hebrews does well to connect the message of the Old Testament and shows it how it finds its fulfilment in Jesus Christ as we read in chapter 10 verses 11 to 18. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will write my laws on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, having perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No longer is an animal being 
sacrificed, but the sacrifice was the perfect Son of God. The perfect Son of God, the one to whom our sin and our rebellion and our offences are against, is the one who entered into our world, not to give us what we deserved, but to bear on our behalf the punishment that we deserve, that we could be reunited with God, that we could have peace with God, our sins could be forgiven, our sins could be separated from us as far as, as the east is from the west. He didn't just come to forgive our sins. He places his spirit within us to change us, to write his laws on our very hearts. And not just to give us a limited access to God like that in the Old Testament, but a permanent, unrestricted access to God through Jesus Christ. And we not only have forgiveness and access, we have Christ himself. So is this good news for you? It's so painfully clear in Leviticus 16 that nobody can presume that they are entitled by their own way to enter into the presence of God. If the most highest religious priest of that time was not worthy, you can guarantee that you're not. And if you're presuming on the idea that, that everything will be sweet when you die, then I think God, the one who is the judge of all, says otherwise. But this is the same God who doesn't just say otherwise, but who provided the means by which we could have our sin dealt with by which we could be restored to God, by which we could have peace with God. In Leviticus, Aaron and the priests could only make atonement for sin by the means that God provided. Jesus is the means that God has provided. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By turning from our sin, placing our faith in Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross was my death. My sins have been laid on him. That God sees in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ a death that has paid the price for all of my sin, past, present, and future. We gain eternal forgiveness. We gain all the blessings of God. We are treated and loved as his very own son. On the day of atonement, the presence of God would look upon the blood of an animal, of bull or a goat, and see that a substitute had taken place. But in our day, God sees in those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. He sees the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus, who has paid the price in full, who has credited his righteousness into the account of all who have placed their faith in him. Which means that the means of salvation, repentance, faith, and righteousness itself, all of it is a beautiful, gracious gift from our loving creator God that he has made available to his rebellious creation who have turned their back on him, who have not dishonored him.
This is why Friday is good news. That the God whom we offended sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf to bring us forgiveness, to bring us peace and union with God by the means he provided that all who would ever look upon him, place their trust in him, would have eternal life, peace with God, justified in his sight, and an eternal hope not only for this life, but now and forever. Let's give thanks and pray. Lord, uh, we are so thankful that you have done what we could never do. You have provided the only means by which we can be made right with you. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus, who was the perfect and final sacrifice once for all, who has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Thank you for this beautiful, precious gift, knowing that none of us deserve it. But regardless of how much we might presently be close to you, you hold out that offer, even to the person who might seem so far from you at this moment. And you say, Jesus' death can be your death. You can be restored to me. You can be a child of God, loved as I love my very own son, Jesus. And we give you thanks for your gracious provision in Christ. Amen.